Hello and welcome to the podcast that won't tell you who it voted for in case it gets expelled from the Labour Party. Congratulations to all our listeners for staying awake for at least 120 hours. They didn't miss a single second of Theresa May resigns, then European elections, then general meltdown week. We've seen the very best of British politics over the past seven days. Whether your favourite moment was little Tommy Robinson losing his deposit, and Widdicombe gurning out of your TV screen like a Victorian poltergeist, or the Prime Minister resigning and nobody really noticing. We'll be helping you to relive them all, like some appalling end-of-life flashback. I'm Dorian Linsky, and it's a guests-free podcast this week, just the regulars. Firstly, a round of applause for Naomi Smith, whose efforts as acting CEO of Best of Britain helped deliver a popular vote for Remain that was at least equal to the Brexit vote, as we may mention later. Hi, Naomi. How was it for you? Yeah, great. Uh... Surpassed expectations, I think, is the phrase. We really hoped we'd win on vote share, but to win on vote share and seats is pretty special. How was it? Uh, how, did you have like election night shindig? No, we decided against that at the last minute, um, largely to try and preserve people's energy levels a bit. So watching it from the comfort of your own home rather than all congregating to do it was how we went with it in the end. Plus, obviously, um, our colleague Eloise didn't get elected. And yeah. so, yeah, we sort of thought it would be wrong for us all to be together and celebrating if if she wasn't successful which sadly she wasn't this time and did you have a highlight yeah absolutely uh it was naomi long um getting elected in northern ireland and obviously that wasn't uh, a sunday night thing we had to wait till monday for that pleasure and so she took the second seat in northern ireland um ahead of Sinn fein uh, that means that northern ireland now has two pro-eu meps and one pro-brexit mep and it was the first time that the alliance has uh won an mep seat there so that was just fantastic and i did have a little mini cry when Aww. her declaration was announced because it was just fantastic. Also, with this is Alex Andreu, all singing, all acting, all cooking, member of our panel. Hello, Alex. Hello. I'm doing it all right now. <laughs> you can't see it. And juggling. <laughs> what was uh, what was your highlight? Uh, I think it's uh, Majid Majid getting elected. Yeah. I mean, ten years ago, that uh, region, Yorkshire and the Humber. Uh, elected uh, BNP leader Nick Griffin as an MEP. So 10 years later, for them to elect a, a, a child, a Somali child refugee yeah. as its first green MEP just made me glow with a warmth. Nothing else that happened last week did. <laughs> he offends all it was, the right people. It was just <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Finally, we're very glad to welcome back to the show for the first time in months, Ingrid Oliver, actor, comedian and actual movie star in Chris Addison's The Hustle. Hi, Ingrid. Hello. Well, are you, please. Were you, were you growing tired of promoting a Hollywood movie in luxury hotels in Los Angeles and hungry for Brexit? Oh, I'm always hungry for Brexit. It, well, I, I, I think uh, if you're going to try and escape political madness, going to America is maybe not the best place to go. <laughs> um, but no, I, I was still in in the thick of it out there. Everyone I talked to, all I all I talk about is Brexit, and as as, as my friends will testify. Um, did that, how did that go down on the junket? Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you know? I, I actually I did an interview with Entertainment Weekly, which is like I don't know the equivalent of Radio Times, is it? I don't know. It's probably it's slightly more glam than that. It's a bit more Kardashian than that. And uh, mentioned the Romaniacs cast. So now we, um, so seven million Americans uh, now know who we are. Yeah. The next live show, and I'm thinking. LA. Seven Long million Beach. Americans yeah. have declined to a download. Are we doing <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the European election, mm. my favourite moment. Uh, Naomi and Alex have been very positive. Mine was, mine was my happiest moment was one uh, based on Schadenfreude, which was watching uh, Islington turning Lib Dem. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's an <coughs> underrated form of therapy, I think, Schadenfreude. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, it was. It was a very. It came from a dark place, but it made me very happy. It's one of the many gifts we've had from our friends on the continent. <laughs> <Schadenfreude>. <laughs> 
This week, we're going to be looking at the fallout from the European elections. What do the results mean for Remain and for the fate of the main parties? And will anything come of the hopeless mess during voting, which meant that possibly thousands of EU citizens who should have been able to vote in the UK were prevented from doing so? Plus, I've got a book out and I'm going to plug it. Way! <laughs> the Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984. It's out now in all good state-censored bookshops. And our producer, Andrew Harrison, <laughs> is going to interrogate me about it later in the show. And because it's such a momentous week, we're doing a quick Ask Romaniac session where we answer your questions at the end of the show. And this one's for all listeners, not just our Patreon backers. All that and more after a quick message from Alex. If Brexit is weighing a little heavily on your mind and it's weighing heavily on ours, then why not alleviate the stress with our partner podcast, Big Mouth, the smart pop culture talk show. Each week it features top music and entertainment writers discussing the music, films, TV and book releases that really matter. It's a bit like our show, except with David Bowie or Netflix instead of Mark Francois and Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> this week, they're talking about the Elton John biopic Rocketman, the new album from Richard Hawley, and a writer's Britpop memoir from the PR who made Suede, Pulp, Elastica, and a generation of 90s stars famous. Phil Savage, he knows where the bodies are buried. Search Big Mouth on your favorite podcast app to find it. And if you can't quite get enough of Naomi Ori and Dunt, they're appearing at a special event called Never Again, How We Protect British Democracy from Social Media and Dark Money in London on Tuesday the 4th of June. It's at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster. It's organised by The Conversation and it will feature leading commentators including Carol Cadwallader and former Supreme Court President Lord Neuberger looking at the dark money and digital techniques that have corrupted recent elections and how we can stop the same things happening again. Tickets are on sale now. Search The Convention Never Again on Eventbrite to get yours. Thanks, Alex. Let's start with the EU elections. While the Brexit press and the BBC went with the straightforward story that the Brexit party had won, because uh, they did have the large number of seats, the vote produced furious wrangling and reinterpretation afterwards. In fact, the hard Brexit parties got 34.6%, the anti-Brexit bloc got 40.4%, and then there was Labour and the Tories, and who knows how to divvy their votes up. Um, Naomi, you like polls. Mm. Is this, I mean, they seem to me unusually accurate, slightly overstating mm -hmm. the Brexit Party's mm -hmm. performance, mm -hmm. um, but, but definitely in the ballpark. So is, is this what we, what we thought was going to happen? So <clears throat> at Best for Britain, we had our huge poll out just before uh, polling day. So that was the weekend before we did that with YouGov and Hope Not Haste. And we had a, a sample of 10,000 people. So um about as accurate as you can get, and, and it was pretty accurate. Where the polls diverged was on the Labour vote, so some of the polls really overstated the Labour vote, and we knew that one of the polls must have got it wrong, and so we were really, really hoping it wasn't ours, and thankfully it wasn't. Um, so a couple of the pollsters have got a bit of egg on their face over that. Um, and the Brexit Party uh, didn't get what they were expected to get. Um, they got uh, less than the polls said that they'd get, um, and of course, yeah, the, the Labour vote and Amber Brexit party vote were therefore slightly overstated. But uh, there did seem to be a closer level of accuracy than we've seen in some recent elections, yes. Ingrid, do you think it is possible to say that Remain won the EU elections, as people like Polly Toynbee have been saying? Ian Dunt simply wrote Remain triumphant. <clears throat> oh, do you know what? I, I, It's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because I, I spent the next day sort of poring over the election results and, and, getting, I, and getting livid over... over um, People who crowing about the fact that Brexit, you know, Brexit clearly won, and it, when it clearly isn't as, as clear cut as that. But I just, I'm sort of over analysing. I, I, I'm as in, I am over analysing, not over analysing <laughs> um, what it all means, because I think clearly what it means is that 
we're still no closer to a consensus. So, so in in some senses, I mean, I'm glad that we came. I'm glad we weren't mm. burned out of the water, obviously. Um, but I don't think it's a sort of resounding victory on, on any side. Um, Alex, how should we try and apportion the Labour and Conservative votes in that Remain Leave axis? Because I saw some of those little kind of uh, bar graphs, which were adding the Labour vote to the Remain one, which, of course, is contentious. So some said like 80% of Labour votes you could count as Remain, maybe 40% of Tory votes. But I mean, we don't know. I I don't think that's right. I think uh, my view is that the correct interpretation is to split it into three blocks. Effectively, people advocating leaving with a deal, people advocating leaving without a deal, and people advocating Remain. Right. And if you do that, of those three blocks, basically Remain is top by a considerable way and leaving with a deal is bottom by a considerable way. Now the question is when it comes to a binary possible next referendum Mm. how does that split down? That obviously depends on the questions on the ballot but I think again generally if you put remain at one end and no deal at the other end and look at it as a sort of scale then I would say that Remain parties plus Labour are on the soft Brexit side and uh, Brexit UKIP plus Conservatives are on the hard Brexit side. Well, you tweeted Farage increasing his MEPs by four is a Brexit surge. Remain parties increasing their MEPs by 19 is a good showing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, well, that was the media is, narrative. This I mean, is what, but this is, no, this, yeah, of course, but this is what we predicted, isn't it? Yeah. Like, this is what we're talking about at the live show and possibly the, the show before that was like, this is how it's going to be framed. In fact, it became 5 and 20 after Scotland and Northern Ireland Mm. uh, declared. So that was a sort of tweet uh, late in the night before the Mm. rest of the results came in. But yeah, I mean, that was always going to be the media narrative. And it was the media narrative for the European uh, dimension of the election, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about later. um, Because I think it's the easiest soap opera dramatic pitch for a news program to work with that i mean i think it's as simple as that but i think that well that's the problem that we have with with covering populism is that it's always i mean we will talk about the rest of europe in more detail later but it's always the problem that actually the kind of populists in europe didn't have a great i mean not a disastrous night but not a great night yeah. Yeah. Uh, compared to say the greens yeah. did much better but for some reason the media does, it's not exciting to be like oh yeah. there's a green wave but <laughs> somehow kind of like you know the racists are doing well seems yeah, yeah, to be yeah. an exciting story yeah, the bogeyman mm-hmm. is coming to get you is always much more compelling as a dramatic narrative and they are you know because we're down the route of uh, a, a 24-hour news being partly entertainment, they will mm. always go for the cheap thrill mm. over accuracy. Did you hear Ed Davey, one of the um, contenders for the Lib Dem leadership, really took um, uh, our... What do we, how do we refer to our Brexit cast contemporaries? Uh, he, he really had a go at Chris Mason, mm. um, saying, you, have, you are reporting this wrongly. You are not adding up the vote share of the pro-Remain parties. And this was kind of live on air and they said a real ding-dong about it with Christmas and say, we are not, I do not accept that we are misreporting this. It is, if you want to add up the votes, then that's, you know, that's fine. You can do it and you can make that case, but you cannot say that we're misreporting it to say that the Brexit party has got the most number of of seats. And and Ed Dave was going, no, it is the job of the media to do this. I mean, I I like Chris, but the BBC does always hide behind Mm. that. We're simply saying the fact it's like, well, this is is a dishonest representation of what's happening because it's not like for like, it's not a Brexit 
Conservative Party versus a mm. Remain party. No. So of course you have to add yeah. up the others. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Professor Curtis did a very similar thing, he actually, throughout the election mm-hmm. coverage, um, which I found really astounding because he came out and said, I mean, it, it was clear that his narrative was, I'm calling it a draw. And I, I think that's fair enough, actually. Yeah. A confirmation of the stalemate is not a bad reading of of the election result. But he uh, dropped out the nationalist parties because he said they people voted for them on more issues than Brexit. When both uh, Plaid Cymru and SNP had made Brexit the only issue for this election, which I think doesn't stand. And also he said um, that Brexit UKIP and uh, Lib Dems uh, Greens uh, represented the two extremist factions in Brexit. And I think that's quite astounding, actually. The idea that someone saying, we don't have a parachute and we're in the middle of a storm, so maybe don't jump out of the plane, is as extreme a position as a drunk Marc Francois going (laughs) jump, 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 jump. I find that Mm. unbelievable. But yet, sadly, believable. And entirely predictable. We'll be talking about the big two, or the not as big as they were last week, two <laughs> later. But the Brexit party did succeed, more so even than UKIP in, in 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the largest single party in the European Parliament is now the party that wants nothing to do with the European <laughs> Parliament. Um, and what a lineup they've got. Uh, Martin Daubney, <laughs> Claire Fox, Richard Tice, Annunziata Rees-Mogg, Women. Tribune of the People. Um, is uh, is there immense charm likely to affect how Brussels deals with Britain or has basically having a similarly sized, slightly smaller contingent of UKIP M- MEPs for the last five years basically yeah, hardened I mean, them <laughs> against bullshit? I think, I think the latter. I think they priced it in. Um, obviously, they've had to deal with kippers for the last five years. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the um, ALDE group, which is the grouping of liberals, that has been hugely boosted. So you've got En Marche and Macron's people in there. You've obviously got the Lib Dems in there. Um, and they are now, you know, one of the biggest groups and, and you know, significantly bigger than the Green group, even though we've, we are talking about a green surge. And I think that is a trend across Europe. Yeah. Um, but but let's not underestimate. 39 plus Exactly, exactly. Like and that. I think what's wonderful is that the UK is now sending far more pro-Remain MP, MEPs this time than it was previously. You know, the Lib Dems have gone from, yeah. you know, only, only one last time. So there are far more pro-EU voices coming from the British delegation than previously. I did I did think when I saw that the Brexit party is the biggest single party now in the European uh, Parliament. I, I did, it did remind me of going to San Antonio and Ibiza when I was with my friends and getting really drunk and vomiting in the streets and just seeing these Spanish people just looking at us like, oh, fuck, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and just this, I, this delegation yeah. of MEPs going to the, propping up the bar in the, in the, in the Parliament. I would watch I a did feel the embarrassed about it. documentary, though. <laughs> about <laughs> me and my friends or about, no, about, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Your, yours. Sure. But then also I would watch one in which it's kind of like, you know, Fox and Daubney. Yeah. The, know, there's a small, a common. There's yeah, a small exactly. technical fly in the Mademusil on, on this in that uh, parties in the European Parliament tend to work in coalitions mm. and the numbers on the coalitions determine how much money they get every year. And so uh, the Brexit party, even though it's the largest single party, will be a difficult party to throw your lot in with mm. 
considering they might not even be there in four months' time or six months' mm. time. Because if you decide I'm going to shun this grouping and go in with the Brexit party, you might end up with not enough numbers in six yeah. months' time to get your yearly stipend. So don't, so, touch, don't touch so, them with the budget. Yeah. Also, as a, a you know, huge advocate of electoral reform, um, I would like to make it clear that I think it's absolutely disgusting that the Lib Dems get to send 22% of the MEPs with only 20% of the vote. I think that, you know, we need to, <laughs> to replace Don with a single transferable vote immediately. Um, what do we make of the vengeful spirit of Anne Widdicombe demanding that the, <laughs> oh the Brexit party be included in the negotiation team? Um, which, which she doesn't want to do again. Yeah. Fly in the wall documentary. Which she doesn't want to do. Yeah. do anyway. But it's she kind of like, like, like we're not going to negotiate. No, it's like we've earned our right to go in there and not negotiate yeah. and then leave. Yeah, I I blame Strictly Come Dancing. I that when you when you sort of make someone okay and sort of funny and fun, seeing that interview, it's just like my God, that's not that's a, that's a fairly. Uh, seeing when she was interviewed that exact interview when she, after frothing at the mouth that she wanted to be part of the negotiations she goes, well I, I wouldn't negotiate with them anyway and you go oh my god we're, we're dealing with this is not okay yeah, that was really come dancing Anne they'd have, had to, they'd have called in an exorcist if she behaved like yeah that. exactly <laughs> well, it was brilliant I posted a little bit of that video in the middle of the night and by the next morning it had gone viral and it, it had gone viral in a European way <laughs> so there were loads of people quote tweeting it with <laughs> French and German. This is what's coming our way, yeah. by the yeah. way, from the UK. Um, You're on, welcome. On the plus side, uh, UKIP died a death and troll candidates like Carl Benjamin were rejected. Gerald Batten lost his seat too. Um, is this the end of their it'll be alt-right on the night direction? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem to have uh, it doesn't seem to have paid off. Yeah, the problem is they fulfilled their function, which was to make Farage's new vanity project look more reasonable and moderate because that's the way the far right works mm, mm. by repositioning itself constantly it sort of makes its next iteration look somehow more reasonable compared to the swivel-eyed loons that are now occupying the, mm. the, the extreme. Well I suppose that's what I mean it's one reason I hesitate to define Farage as a, a lot of people just call Farage a fascist and of course once you call someone a fascist many kind of tactics are then justified um and I wonder whether it's very hard to convince people at large outside your kind of hmm. Farage hating echo chamber, you know, that he's a fascist when you have actual fascists like mm. Tommy Robinson and some of the UKIPers. Yeah. You know, and is, is that maybe this is that maybe the is that maybe the tact? I mean, I don't imagine Tommy Robinson is just like, I'm going to throw my body under the train here. No, in a noble attempt to make Nigel Farage look more reasonable. I mean, I don't imagine that's the strategy. No, it's but he's a useful a idiot for them. Yeah, yeah, but it's what happens. Mm. I mean, historically, it's what happens. It's what happens in France. It's what happens in Greece. It's, it's what happens. You know, the people who set up these things yeah. allow them to spin out of control and then get up sit somewhere else and say, no, they've gone too far for me. Yeah. Mm. Their own views haven't changed one iota, but somehow, magically, they now appear more reasonable. As for success of the Lib Dems and the Greens, um, is it just a protest vote because this is a very protesty election? Mm. Or, or is it here to stay? And I, I was seeing some really interesting uh, sort of traffic on, on Twitter after Alastair Campbell's expulsion. Yeah where there were quite a lot of people who had Labour voters who had mm -hmm. gone for Lib Dems this time 
And they were not like, don't worry, guys, I'll be back. Yeah, they were kind of、yeah. like, might、mm. not be back. Yeah. Okay, so I think for people like Alistair, it is a protest vote. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, for, for others, it will have been as well. And the Ashcroft poll that came out yesterday, which is worth everybody looking at, it's always a very comprehensive、um, view of, what, of what's going on.、Um, it showed that. The majority of people they'd polled had said they were going to stick with their European vote in a general election. Now, we have heard that before, and it's not true、um, and hasn't held true. I think a few things have to happen, though, for it to stick. I think for the Lib Dems in particular, they need to stop talking up coalition if they want to hold on to those votes. I think there are a lot of people who'd be happy to hold their nose for this election only to vote、mm. for them, but really haven't forgiven them. Um, so, they need to absolutely you know, stop talking about what a great job they did then, or better still, properly a p o l o g i s e for it.、Um, I think for the Greens, potentially they could be holding on to a, a new、um, core vote there.、Um, and I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it, it, what's, what's interesting about the Labour vote is, is one around credibility. So, obviously, since Sunday, we've seen. Some in the Labour leadership make much more positive noises about a second referendum. I know we're going to come to that in a bit. But I think it's about the difference between truth and credibility. <clears throat> With Jeremy's credibility, is probably similar to where Clegg's was in 2015.、Mm. It didn't matter what the Lib Dems were saying by then, nobody was listening to them anymore because they just didn't believe them. And so, yeah, I, 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 unless there is a big change there, probably in Messenger. Um, rather than just on their position, I think they, they could well have lost some of those votes. I was going to say, with the Greens, I think、uh, there was an interesting the Lord Ashcroft poll, the, the breakdown of ages on people who voted for the Brexit party and people who voted for the Greens. The Greens is clearly a youth vote.、Mm. And I remember, I think as an 18 year old, I voted Green. It feels like that is where you know, the youth of today are heading. That's where they're putting their votes because they're untainted as well, apart from anything else, the Green Party.、Uh, well, and, the, and, and they have. You know, everybody's talking about the issues that the Greens yeah, have been、absolutely. talking about for, for decades. And my mum,、uh, normally Conservative,、um, she voted Green.、Um, and that's not being a kind of young progressive necessarily, mm. Mm. but it was certainly a protest against Brexit. But also, it was, you know, it's like she does actually care about the,、mm. the, those issues.、Mm. And that, that stretches, it's not just the left、yeah. that spills、mm. to. We did a podcast before the election and.、Um, I thought then, and I still do think, that there's also an emotional line that is crossed for someone who's never voted for anyone other than Labour、yeah. going and casting、yeah. their vote for、mm. someone else. It's the habit breaking thing, it, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And that, I think, is a big danger for Labour because in London, for example, they tend to herd a lot of votes by saying, no one else can get elected, vote for us to、mm. stop the Tories. Looking at some constituencies now, a lot of people will be thinking, well, actually, that's just not, not true. true、mm. Yeah.、Mm. Nebi, can you explain what's happening with the denying my vote scandal, which、uh, I saw kind of whizzing around yeah, the other、sure. day? Yeah, sure. So, this isn't new.、Um, certainly happened in 2014. I think it happened you know, before that. Alex will probably tell me it's been happening ever since he's been <laughs> eligible to vote in the UK. That、uh, EU citizens have found it much more difficult to get registered to vote and to、uh, be able to vote than UK EU citizens. And It's the last two European elections,、yeah. actually, where I've really noticed、yeah. them putting barriers there. And so, at Best Britain, we did a bit of research on this before the, before the deadline to register to vote, and we found that millions and millions of people were missing from the register, in particular EU、uh, citizens living in the UK who were going to be eligible both in the local elections and in these European elections to vote if they filled in all the extra. 
hurdles that they had to, to go through to get registered. And these are things like signing a declaration to say that you won't also vote in your home country. Um, and that's why we built uh, apps and tools to make that process much easier for everybody. And frankly, the government should be providing that and making the barrier to entry into our democracy much lower than it is. However, we didn't have much time to do it. It was a big rush. Um, and having promised to sort it out in 2014, the government just hadn't. Um, responsibility for this lies very much with the Cabinet Office. I wouldn't necessarily blame the Electoral Commission for it. Um, uh, you know, Ultimately, it is for the Cabinet Office to have sorted out. But what happened was that um, thousands of EU citizens were turned away from the polling station last Thursday. They were even some of them had some pretty racist comments made to them by polling station staff. You need to go and vote in your own country. Jesus. You know, when this is their country. So um, late Thursday night, I was sort of messaging a few people thinking, can we get an emergency judicial review tomorrow uh, from a court on this? Largely, it was it's, it's an EU treaty that's been breached, not a UK one. So we weren't sure what a UK court would be able to do. But the three million group and the British and Europe group have now collaborated on a crowd justice crowdfunder to raise the funds to do a test case judicial review, um, which is working its way through. And they are collecting lots and lots of case studies. So if you're listening and you haven't already contacted them with your story of what happened in a polling station last Thursday um, and being turned away or somebody that you know, then do get in touch with them because they probably will this may well result in class action being taken whether that can have any effect on um, the outcome or not we, we don't know and of course what we don't know is whether if all of those votes had been counted whether it would have changed a result in any of the but regions the principle but remains the, the principle remains the same and, and if as many British citizens in outside the UK were denied as as is being alleged it's upwards of a million people who didn't get to vote so almost certainly had they all broadly voted the same way that could have tipped the tip the outcome. Alex, not a lot of people know this, but the European elections also happened in the rest of Europe. Fun <laughs> fact. <laughs> um, obviously, a lot of countries. Um, <laughs> don't do them all alphabetically. Um, but, but kind of broadly, what were the, we talked a little bit about the green wave there. What, what were the, what were the kind of the, the interesting trends? Well, the, the interesting thing about them is that it's a mixed result. It's a mixed result with an overall uh, message that does echo the message here. We were saying before there's no clear uh, thing that came out of the UK election. I think there is. And I think the message is this, that actually uh, there are parties which are proposing a sort of compromise to unite the country and the vast majority of every country is going, fuck uniting. People have began to see this as a sort of existential battle, as a helm's deep, where if we do not defend this point, if we do not put a marker down and say enough is enough, we will be mm. swallowed up by this populist wave. And so that's what I think mm -hmm. the trend is. Now, you look at there, there are basically two layers of analysis. So you look at somewhere like Greece, Golden Dawn, actual fucking Nazis, mm. They've gone from 9.4% to 4.9%. So their vote is almost halved. The next level of analysis is also that the, the center-right party in Greece, which has taken much of that vote, has become a lot more hard-right in order to do that. So, you know, there are a lot of moving parts. But, for example, you look at, you look at the Netherlands. Gert Wilders annihilated. Now, okay, there's a new... Uh, alt-right party that had that had some of those seats there, but Gert Wilders as a person was p 
pivotal to the alt-right movement in Europe. He was the peg on which Bannon sort of hung his coat. Mm. Um, you look at uh, you look at a place like France, where the headline was, "Oh, uh, Le Pen has won." Le Pen won in 2014 with mm. a larger percentage and a larger number of votes. I was chatting to someone inside uh, Macron's campaign, and, and he was telling me they were fucking delighted mm. to come out 0.9% well, only behind yeah, yeah. Macron's yeah, had, yeah, a, had yeah. a kind of yeah. rough yeah. time of it. After so, a year of gilets jaunes, they were delighted to, to be yeah. within touching distance. And also, there are no real close rivals to mm. them. Well, another trend that, that, that struck me was um, that the, the anti-EU left, Mélenchon's party, sorry, name escapes me, yeah, yeah. they link in Germany, Pernemos, I, I can't remember what their stance on the EU is, but obviously you know, very, very hard left. But they're, they're similar to they're, Syriza in right, that not they, want, they want Europe to not be a monetarist sort of okay, institution. Okay, well, that's, that's fair enough. Okay, mm-hmm. so but they don't want to leave. But in France yeah. and Germany, the kind of, you know, a sort of message for the Lexiters, it's like the, the sort of the anti-EU left mm. is not thriving. Which ties into what I was saying before. I think people have begun, savvy voters have begun to see that we've turned over this rock and there's all kinds of shit crawling out. And this is much bigger than actually tiny political... <laughs> Uh, debates. This is about light versus dark, basically, and we need to get our shit together yeah. and resist it. And so is broadly what happened in the UK reflected elsewhere in Europe, that populist party did kind of okay, liberals and greens did quite okay, and the kind of established parties in the middle did less well? In, in the UK, I mean, the, the effect was pronounced because of Brexit, but, but yes, so, the general so, trend is that there's support ebbing away from centre-left and centre-right. So the centre general right. trend is that we're becoming more like Europe? Yeah. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, finally, the exciting possibility for Ingrid to consider. Um, could the Brexit party win a general election? Opinion has them on 25%, with the Tories on 22%, Labour 26%, and Lib Dems 12%. Obviously, this is, is quite a week to run a poll like that. And they'll need a manifesto next time. Um, <laughs> and how can they unite disaster capitalists, nativists, the Revolutionary Communist Party, Alumni Association, and the former editor of Loaded? <laughs> <laughs> Um, do, do, do you do you see that oh, that's as brilliant when you say it like that? <laughs> do you see that as a viable general election proposition? No, absolutely not. I mean, in the same way that you know, people rightly say the the EU uh, the the EU elections are the European elections are not a, a general election. They, they're absolutely not. You know, like in France, I remember they've got the two rounds of voting, haven't they? And in the first round of votes, Marine Le Pen always does very well. And then when people actually come to voting for their leader, <clears throat> no, people don't, don't actually want mm-hmm. a fascist, uh, in inverted commas, or not in inverted commas, um, mm-hmm. running their country. So, so no is the answer to that. What I would say is that we can't be too complacent. Um, what I hoped Monday morning would be would be a massive wake-up call for the Remain parties who, remember, didn't get their act together mm. to stand down for each other this time. I think they absolutely have to next time. There is a, a real threat that Farage and Boris or whoever is the new the leader of the Conservative Party will form a regressive they'll alliance a and they'll yeah. do a deal and they'll stand down for each other because that's what UKIP did in 2014. It stood down um, in hundreds of seats, actually, to let the pro-Brexit mm. Uh, conservative candidate have the clearest run um, and we've got to be ready this time and a general election could be upon us as quickly as this set of elections was and they will use that excuse of oh, we didn't have time so go to besserwritten.org slash work together and sign the petition to get them to do that One very very quick point um, Farage is a good campaigner but he's a dreadful manager 
his parties tend to fall apart after the election. UKIP ended up with fewer than half the MEPs it got elected last time. So that can't be uh, overstated. Yeah, that's promising. So what does all this mean for the parties? Starting with JC and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> Labour has started messaging in favour of another vote all of a sudden. Emily Thornberry went freelance on the BBC and pretty much offered one live on air. <laughs> uh, John McDonnell and Diane Abbott talking in favour. Even Jeremy Corbyn mm. is softening. Um, so the whole discussion we had was that, that basically voters, Remainers, were not going to be listened to by Labour unless they punished Labour. That was the whole argument that we were making, just mm-hmm. going... You should probably vote for another party. Sorry for getting into trouble, Alastair Campbell. Um, so that worked, right? Yeah. Like a dream. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like yep. literally live on air <laughs> yep. as the results were coming in. Yeah. So we were right. And then things got, things all got a little bit uh, messy with a punishment beating for Paul Mason <laughs> um, from from the from the Labour left um, for saying that, that that sort of Corbyn's bad advisers should go. Yeah. Um, now. I mean, if after an election failure like this, it's kind of weird that the, literally Alistair Campbell is the only person who's gone, <laughs> just as a member. <laughs> but like nobody, nobody responsible for this. And some of the, the, the MEPs, I think maybe some of the ones that weren't re-elected, mm-hmm. you know, put posts online saying, saying this is what, this is how bad the campaign was. This is how, you know, inadequate the leaflets were. Some of them had errors on them. They didn't have any kind of like, you know, the regions didn't have much power. It was all imposed from above. And yet, it seems like, oh, you're not allowed to say, even someone like Paul Mason, who's got a lot of credibility there, is not allowed to say they should give some of these people the heave-ho. Mm. They, is it just good? Is anything, on that front, is anything, is, how much is going to change? I think all eyes on next week's election. Mm-hmm. So we have a by-election in Peterborough uh, next Thursday, the 6th of June. Um, and I think if Labour don't win that... Um, and certainly if they don't win it comfortably, then I think that those pressures will have even more credence and legitimacy than they do now. Uh, so I think there are a lot of people waiting to see what happens there. Um, an opposition party fighting a by-election at a time when the Prime Minister's resigned, mm. you know, the governing party are having a beauty pageant. To not win that then, when it is a held seat for them, uh, you know, they, they had the, the incumbent or the, the sitting MP is is a huge, huge, huge disappointment for them. Uh, and there's no real reason why they wouldn't win that unless something was incredibly wrong. So I think there might well be moves to to change the leadership after then. Ingrid, Emily Thornberry was pretty emphatic. Jeremy Corbyn less so. Um, hmm. What how much further does Labour have to go to convince you that they're really doing this and not just leaving it on the table or? winking at it <laughs> it's, I feel like it's, I've been away for a few months and I feel like nothing has changed <laughs> in terms of Labour like we've been having this conversation for year, years actually they always seem to sort of give a coded message or nod and wink that something's changing and then actually I don't know a what a spokesperson it, always a sp- yeah. spokesperson X always <laughs> pops up no I mean I think I mean I think at this point I think it's hard for them to say. I think they could. I, I could see them supporting a second referendum. I think it's hard for them. To, it's the step of coming out for Remain that I think mm. Jeremy Corbyn really struggles with because that is not what he feels, and he's a he's an ideologue. He's a man of principle in inverted commas, and I, I think it's hard. It's almost impossible to move him from that. 
So you're, you're, you're twitching in a way that suggests that you disagree with me. Go on, what are you going to say? I don't know whether he, I still don't believe he's that ideological about this. I think he wants, to, I think he very much is of the left. There's a huge section of the left that just wants to somehow resolve this, however, leave, remain, halfway house, I, whatever, and get on to other things. But his advisors, the one that, that Paul Mason is, is angry with, they're the, they're the ideologues. Yeah. Sure, but then he's he's the head of the party, so so you're stuck. Do you not think he has in his head, or maybe it's as you say, maybe it's his advisor, it has in his head what the ideal Labour voter looks like, and it's not a Remainer. Mm. And I think, and I think we're all guilty of it to a certain extent. We, we characterise people in our heads as to what they yeah. what they are. He was a glassery I mean, man. He should just looked out into the crowd. Well, and I just sort of think that so Lisa and Andy's been making a lot of we've lost our way with the working class voter, and. And, and claiming that that is somehow something that's happened since the referendum is just utter nonsense. It has long since yeah, been happening. Course. Labour's vote and its members have for, for far longer <laughs> looked like a liberal metropolitan elite kind of voter than they ever have, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, you know, well, this sort is a, of the well, this Northerner. is a, a massive sort of existential question because, I, I, you know, Tim Shipman, I noticed, was arguing the next general election, basically, like it or not, will be Leave versus Remain. And Tories and Labour would be better off just sort of picking a side. But obviously that means if you look at the results, you can certainly argue that across the country, Labour was losing uh, three times three times the number to Remain parties that lost the Brexit party. Mm. However, I was watching the results come in, you know, Wigan, Rotherham, Bolsover, Hartlepool, mm-hmm. um, they were losing much more to the Brexit party. Yeah. Sometimes who were getting over 50%. And I wondered, when you look at your, your Lisa Nandies and Caroline Flint mm-hmm. who represent those kind of areas and they're talking about this is who Labour stands for and these are our heartlands as if there's something kind of like fetishistic about yeah. those are the heartlands yeah. and then parts of the cities and inner cities that have been Labour and more strongly Labour yeah. for mm. a very long time well, now I, I, are somehow not I had the a, heartlands. I had a little spat with Lisa Nandy online because she was saying, you know, how do we get to power without places like, uh, you know, Walsall and Wigan and... Scotland. You know, and that's, that <laughs> oh, is know, what Scotland I said. Is, yeah. But that yeah. is what I said. Tell me how you get to power without mm-hmm. London and Scotland because you you can't. And the point is these these views are put forward as somehow uniting... When, as a matter of fact, they deny the fact that there is there are millions of working class people in London. And well, then you have the ridiculous <laughs> Ian Lavery going that people's vote is sneering at ordinary people. And it was like, why don't you just why don't you define ordinary people mm. here? Because I think most people yeah. count as ordinary people unless you're like, you know, Prince or something. <laughs> he's not an ordinary person. And he's dead. He wasn't. And he's dead. But you know, he was like, you know, there are certain people you just go, OK, you're not ordinary. But Rees Mogg isn't an ordinary no, but person. Also the, but like why not why not a kind of like a black person who lives in the in a city in the south may be just as much an ordinary person just as important as a white person. Well, you know, exactly. here, here. even at a more basic level next time Ian Lavery goes into a coffee shop to get his latte he should think of the person making that coffee for him who is working on the exact minimum wage, on the same minimum wage that a person in Lisa Nandy's constituency is working on, but is facing costs three times as high, and tell him that he's not working class or her that mm. she's not ordinary and she's somehow metropolitan elite. Brace yourselves to talk about the Conservatives. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, it was it sort of struck me um, watching um, Rory Stewart or Matt Hancock or whatever, and you just think, oh, you know, in another era, <laughs> these seem like pretty reasonable, a little right wing for my taste still, but, you know, <laughs> quite reasonable kind of centrist Tories who are, you know, into reality and 
things like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought, well, obviously they're going to be on like, you know, 1%. So is there any chance that somebody who isn't a headbanger, whether that be Johnson or Raab or Esther McVeigh or something, you know, is there any chance that someone like that won't win? Because they're very hard to predict Tory leadership contests. So is, but is it possible that whoever it is, even if it's not one of the big names, is not willing to willing to go for no deal Brexit? Well, I mean, I don't think Hunt and Gove and people like that would do that. I had assumed, as I think most people who follow politics at all know, that the front runner in a Tory leadership election never wins. We know that, you know, we've had Gove knife Boris at the last minute. Last time we had Eurosceptics voting for Ken Clark to keep Portillo off the member ballot in 2001. I assumed there'd be another caucus happening this time. Apparently there isn't. Um, although there also seems to be almost no one who hasn't now thrown their hat in the ring to be a Tory leader. There's a dozen or so of them now, at least. Um, But I think what the Remainers are hoping for is that their person, whether that is Roy Stewart or somebody else, I mean, let's see if Justine Greening or somebody throws their hat in the ring, could come a good second with about 70 or 80 MPs backing them. And that then about half of those would threaten to walk away from the votes and and deny the government the majority if they did some kind of no deal threatened thing that that Boris has talked up. However, I don't think we should bloody well wait for the Conservative beauty pageant uh, to decide any of this. And I think we should nix them early on. And I think we need to get our MPs fired up while the House is still sitting this June into July until the House rises to get no deal off the table. And they can do it in this parliament. They don't need to wait for the next one. And I think it's obscene that we're sort of all sitting back and waiting for them to finish their beauty pageant and allow this farcical, willy-waving nonsense about, oh, I'll, I'll take us to no deal if, if, yeah. if we have to. I don't want to be in the EU after the 31st of October. You know, we had it before. There are statutory um, instruments, uh, there are standing orders that can go down to take back control of parliament and the order paper and to legislate to mandate the, um, the, the prime minister of the day to revoke if we get close to no deal and that's what our MPs have to do. Ingrid do you think that the leader a new leader is going to make any real difference if the facts don't change because there are still certain facts regarding what they're going to renegotiate the Irish backstop is still incredibly important Um, the country is still divided they still don't have the parliamentary numbers like so there's all this who's going to lead us does it actually matter? I think it makes a huge difference. I think it's hugely important. I, 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 uh, I can imagine if someone, if there was a no deal candidate that won, for example, in some ways that would flush out no deal quickly and then Labour would have to Remain. be confronted with, you, you would have to. Yeah. You, you couldn't prevaricate, you couldn't talk about doing deals because that's just gone. Yeah. So in some ways that would either force, I suppose, a general election or, or a second referendum, in which case, if it was between Remain and no deal then we would stand a very good chance of winning, I think. Someone like Michael Gove scares me more because I think, I look at him and I think this will go on for years because he wants Brexit, but I don't think he's a no-dealer. But I think he's also a good state, I think he's a very good politician. Hypothetically, actually, I've done this. I joined the Conservative Party on Monday. Um, it's a three-month rule. Do you know what? It doesn't yeah. say that on the website, and I, I, I assume that would be the case because with Jeremy Corbyn, obviously, the leadership of elections, it was... I thought I was being very clever and circumnavigating the system. Nothing to there stop you no... joining Boris Johnson's leadership campaign, though, which I think what you've just declared is I... that it's Oliver for Johnson. 
<laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it here first. I wasn't talking about sabotaging. I was just talking about having a say in the future no, no, leader of the country. Him, you want him I to be. I just want you, to have a say in that. Yeah. Um, obviously, now I, I realise I can't. I'm, I'm very Twenty-five dis- pounds gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very it. disappointed not to see Rory Stewart's uh, happy face popping up at the window. Oh. <laughs> the studio just up for a bit. Of, just in the area, I wanted a chat. Little chat. Pretending to hold his phone. Yeah. Bless him. Bless him. Um, now, something happened that, that normally would be quite important, um, but doesn't feel very important at all, uh, which is the Prime Minister, Theresa May, oh, yeah. um, resigned and thus bringing to an end her non-premiership with her non-event of a resignation. Is there anything, even the future historians what we're talking about are going to be tempted to kind of leave her out? Like Tyrion in the mm. in the book and the end Game of Thrones, <laughs> just like no, you're you're not you're not in there. <laughs> is is there anything? Normally, this is, we could do a whole show on the resignation of a prime minister. Is is there anything to say about this? Yes, uh, this is my pitch, Theresa. If you're listening, her last act, Theresa, my darling, as if prime minister, <laughs> should be to revoke Article Fifty. I say that in all seriousness, it would be calling uh, the bluff of people like Boris Johnson saying, if you genuinely think you can get a better deal and uh, uh, navigate these these negotiations to a different uh, outcome, then I'm going to give you a clean slate to do that with. By revoking Article 50, you get your stuff together, you do it how you want. Remember, he can go to no deal at any point. He doesn't have to use the two years. He can notify Article 50 and take us to a no deal that day. Um, so you, you want you want uh, a mic drop? Well, yes, hmm. I think that would actually give her a legacy to say, yeah. "Okay, I tried my best. Someone else have a go, but you're not going to have a go with this hanging over our heads." Because uh, someone noticed that she's put a clause in the extension agreement yeah, yeah. that that explicitly says we will not negotiate, we cannot negotiate during this extension period. So there would need to be some kind of reset. Northern Ireland is different. Wales is different. Scotland is obviously it's just ultra, ultra remain now. Um, change didn't work out as planned. Um, but rather than kind of, we don't have time to talk about all them individually, but I suppose there is the argument that, that, that in certain seats you could actually, you know, uh, you could look at, changes tally and go well if they hadn't stood and of course it's not always transferable because some of them, they might have been taking people from the Tories and they've, they said if, if all those change votes had gone to the Lib Dems or the Greens um, then that would have been another seat for a Remain party uh, certainly the message seemed to be that mm. it was time for a united front but one thing I want to ask you because we haven't had this since the hustings is the change in Lib Dem candidate at the hustings said there wasn't, there just wasn't time. That it came on too quickly. Mm, there wasn't time mm, to organise mm, it. Mm. Is that true? And if so, if it's a time issue, does that mean that? Well, this, they have to start planning for whatever happens next. Now. Absolutely. So this is my big pitch to all of the MP, the internationalist MPs. So whether you're in, an internationalist <clears throat> in the Tory party or the Labour party or obviously Lib Dems and, and Caroline and the Greens and the nationalists have to work together because the regress of alliance will be. It could come upon us very, very quickly. I think a general election is now much less likely. I think neither of the main big main parties would do well to call one at the <laughs> moment um, or, or back a call for one. But it's, it's crucial that they do and the the different ways that they can do it is first they've got to act in concert in parliament much better so around votes around amendments around putting down some kind of legislation to stop no deal and mandate the the new prime minister to revoke 
if she doesn't follow Alex's advice and do it before she goes, that's one thing. But then there are ways that they can work together outside of Parliament. Was there a good excuse for well, why they didn't this time? No, no, okay, no. I don't think there was. I mean, <laughs> they, 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 even though they'd missed the deadline to withdraw, they could have done things like the Scottish Change candidate did, who stood up and said, don't vote for me. You know, they, they could have done far more of that. And then I think they would have benefited because they would actually have been a party of change rather than behaving just like every other party ever has done. The future, at any rate the immediate future, is not with the sensible men. The future is with the fanatics. That was George Orwell in Time and Tide magazine in June 1940, and it's one of numerous hair-raisingly familiar moments in Dorian's new book, The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984, which is published this week. I'm Andrew Harrison. I produce this show. I'm reading it right now, and I've got to say that even though he's our mate, it is a fantastic read. Thought-provoking, chilling, stuffed with astonishing ideas, and it's also very funny. I particularly liked H.G. Wells going all Alan Partridge when he says to Orwell, read my early works, you shit. <laughs> fantastic. Dorian, you talked about the book a little bit at... Uh, our live show um but the key question is why write a biography of 1984 and not orwell himself well there are many biographies well a fair few biographies of orwell himself Mm. um and i well one thing i love the idea of writing about something that's incredibly famous because when something is incredibly famous whether that's a film or a book or a song um it becomes misunderstood and actually the story the real stories behind very famous cultural icons i find fascinating and I also just wanted to go straight to the ideas, uh, go to the bits of his life that influenced the books. You've always got that anchor because I've, I've had that thing, which I think a lot of people have when they're reading memoirs or biographies, where they're kind of eager to get through the childhood, to mm. get to the point where somebody does the thing that they are known for. Um, and I, th- I love the idea of a biography of a, of a book. And then you think, OK, what information, what stories do I need to tell to tell the story of this book? And some of that's Orwell's story. Then there's a bit of H.G. Wells, there's political context, uh, and then there's all the stuff that happened to the book after Orwell died. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard not to see absolutely everything these days in the context of, you know, in the age of Brexit or in the age of Trump. Did you find while you were writing it, because the Brexit crisis is kind of <clears throat> unfolding and mounting while you were writing this book, did it condition the way you wrote it, do you think? It was only very emotionally cathartic to be able to go to this place and to tell this story because... It was worse then. <laughs> you can feel bad. But it was undoubtedly it was worse. worse. You had Hitler, Stalin, and the Second World War, and all the horrors that that brought with it. And there was something about the way that Orwell wrestled uh, with those ideas and, and how complex it was, um, and what was the morally right thing to do, and to think of kind of the world that he, you know, how the world had gone so wrong, what he hoped would would come out of it. And... One thing I really didn't want to do was constantly kind of like jog the reader in the ribs and go, oh, this is familiar. And I think once it's sort of set up in that way, I think readers are intelligent enough to come across a quote, you know, from Notes on Nationalism, which we discussed on the podcast, or from, you know, many of his articles and go, oh, right, that feels familiar now. I think it would be murderous to read if I was constantly going, oh, a bit like Trump. (laughs) (laughs) And the book is split into two sections, the the writing of the book and Orwell's struggle to complete it and his death. And then it's kind of afterlife in pop culture. And you you made your bones as a music journalist. um, You know, I've I've got a weird Stone Roses second album type fact where now 
equidistant in time from the Apple Mac 1984 advert as that advert was from 1984 hmm. itself. It's like 36 years. 35 it's 35 years. years from the year 1984, yeah. Yeah, so it's like and that it was then seen as a kind of a touchstone and almost a kind of an ancient text of, of, of literature. Were there other things that sort of surprised you about its, its afterlife in pop and shared culture? Just the range. I mean, mm. politically, there was the range as in kind of, you know, there were kind of radicals of the new left and then kind of ultra McCarthyites on the right embraced it. And we see that now. We see, if you just look on Twitter, the kind of range of people that quote 1984 or, or post quotes that aren't actually from 1984, yeah. but, but they've just made Vote it Brexit, up or found George somewhere Orwell. else. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also just the way it popped up in, you know, I'd f- forgotten that, you know, I knew about Stevie Wonder song, Big Brother, but John Lennon, you know, mm. just Big Brother. I, I again on on Bowie, on V for Vendetta, on uh, The Handmaid's Tale, and there's there's a lot on Togolin's Brazil. It's like this kind of it's something that's too big to ignore. So even if you want to do something differently, and your your dystopia needs to be you know something fresh and different. You sort of have to negotiate your way around 1984 and inevitably there are bits that you take from it. And so it's kind of this this cache of dystopian tropes, which sort of Orwell had some of them which collected from uh, other books, but also from real life, you know, from totalitarian reality. And this is kind of I think anybody who writes a dystopian novel now is probably going to revisit 1984, if only to be aware of what they don't want to repeat yeah, I'm reading the H.G. Wells bit at the moment and Orwell criticises him because his utopias are kind of clean and rational and there's no flags and there's no blood or struggle. It's it's never a good idea to try and put yourself in someone else's head, but do you think Orwell would have recognised the phenomenon of the Brexit party now where it's actually about the pain? Bring on the misery, we're equal to it, and it will be some kind of unifying, cleansing event. Oh, absolutely. He did understand. He really, really understood the appeal of of irrationality. And I think that was where he thought that that not only Wells, but even the kind of previous dystopians, you know, Huxley was wrong. And you can argue a lot about I think both of them were both right and wrong about different different societies at different points in time. But the whole thing there was um, we're going to lull people with kind of, you know, with pleasure and clean glittering surfaces and uniformity and that is in itself sort of sinister but we're going to give people a happy life and that's why they will conform and Orwell's insight into Hitler was that he basically you know Hitler says I will give you you know pain struggle and death and people got very excited by that and I think that is he understood the irrational and H.G. Wells was very very rational and he just didn't understand the why people would would go for something like that it's remarkable isn't it because we tend not to make that connection between hitler's offer hitler's retail offer to the Mm. german people and churchill's retail offer which was blood sweat toil and tears and people were surprisingly up for it you know people don't always just want a dishwasher and a fridge and 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 a quiet life and that is the kind of terrifying thing for wet liberals like us we think that that is what people want well, you know, and there's something that I'm not as an atheist. It's a hard one to wrestle with. And Orwell was pretty much an atheist, um, but you know, but he thought that kind of as religion and other theorists of totalitarianism have said this, as religion sort of ebbed out of, you know, public life and lost its kind of central importance, is that kind of nationalism took that place. Is that yeah. people needed a sense of belonging? And there's all this talk, even yeah, you know, in the 30s, about how capitalism atomizes society and how people only see themselves as kind of like 
cogs in the machine. They don't really know what to believe in. And then somebody gives them something to believe in, even if it's kind of terrifying, they will flock to that. And so that was one, just one of those insights that you come across that it's, you think, well, that does not only apply to World War II. And I think the problem is it's always been relevant at 1984 at various points in time. The problem now is that it's relevant in a much more visceral, scary way yeah. than when you were just talking about CCTV. Yeah. And finally, I mean, the, we could talk about this all day, and it, I enjoy the book so much, but it, it coins particular concepts, double think, the memory hole, newspeak, many of these things that have become so embedded in that people actually forget where they came from. Is there an element of the kind of 1984 corpus of thought that's neglected that we should maybe pay a little bit more attention to? Well, amazingly, considering he wanted to get across ideas, he succeeded very, very well. Like, the ideas have flown, and even if people kind of misunderstand some of them, they're, they're out there. Those words are out there. What I think is, is actually underrated is what it's like as a novel. I think there's definitely been a bit of a cliche that it's actually it's not that great. It's great ideas, but it's not that great as a novel. And the sort of dreamlike quality it has, the sense that you don't know what is real, the kind of, he wouldn't have used the word at the time, but, you know, the, the, the sense of being gaslighted and that you don't, you, you know, and he doubts his own memory and he doubts facts and this sort of phantasmagorical quality, which means that you can actually read the novel as much more sort of mysterious and unstable than probably your memory of it if you read it as a teenager when it seems pretty emphatic. And it's not. There's a lot of unanswered questions and there's a kind of real eeriness to the psychological state that it conjures up. Mm. We should let you go back to your real job of presenting the podcast. I'll give it a go. Let's give it a go. I'm, I'm loving it and we are going to be selling copies on the website as well. So um, have a look. It's incredible to read. And we on the team are, I have to say, it, terribly proud of you. Thank you. Finally, Ask Romaniacs. We usually do it as an exclusive extra podcast available only to our Patreon backers, but it's been such a busy week that we to do a bit for the general audience too. Here's some of your questions from the past couple of days. Ali Quack on Twitter asks, uh, and this is probably one for you, Naomi, do you think the Remain voter people helped or hindered any of the region's results? Quite controversially, they went. They, they recommended change in London, didn't they? And I know that confused yeah, they did. people. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that was the main thing that, that caused the hurt was conflicting advice from different quarters i think that was you know for for the the twitter sphere romaniacs that was very confusing but we shouldn't assume that that is everybody and of course most people aren't on twitter most people sadly aren't yet listening to this podcast (laughs) and and what in what good shape are their thumbs because mine are knackered (laughs) um uh, but yeah i think that was confusing obviously we had gina miller giving advice to just vote lib dem or plaid or smp in scotland and wales and then you had remain voter doing their thing that's why best of britain we just sort of did our poll and and provided sliders so that people could calculate it for themselves um but (sighs) I, I can understand why it was done, and I think you know it was all done in, with good intentions. So I'm not sort of knocking anyone for trying it, but I think it probably did confuse more than it resolved um, the the frustrations that voters had about who to vote for. Ingrid Johnny Saunders asks: To what extent do you think the media obsession with narrative is contributing to the political chaos we find ourselves in? Um, well, I think we are, we touched on that earlier, didn't we? About um, how obviously uh, fascists are more interesting. Uh, than than just normal. Say what you like about them. They yeah, are they are bloody <laughs> interesting, <laughs> fascinating creatures. And as with all things, an easy headline is 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 more appealing than than nuance, uh, detail, um, and boring things like that. So so yes, 
inevitably. And on, also on Twitter, I find myself on Twitter, and that's not necessarily media driven, but but you know contributors, journalists that contribute on 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 Twitter, which is even worse because then it's you're diluting it down to sort of 140 characters. Um, I find myself getting apoplectic about things that actually, as you just said, Naomi, you know, in the greater world, people don't read and follow. So I, I'm guilty of that myself sometimes, assuming there's a narrative that actually doesn't exist. I find myself a bit narrative allergic, I think, in that some of the very strong Remainers who were doing that thing, I think a dishonest thing, of putting all the Labour vote onto the mm. Remain mm-hmm. pile, mm. I didn't like. So it's like mm. the kind of journalist in me is kind of like, I'm, I'm not... I want to propose some kind of counter-narrative, yeah. but not to the point where it becomes dishonest. Yeah. I get that, but at the same time, you know, they're driving buses around the country saying 350 million to the NHS. So to an extent, our self-doubt is is their big weapon. You know, the yeah. fact that we're discussing everything yeah, to yeah. death. And is this fair? Are we saying the fair thing? And they're going around saying, whoa, it's all Bulgarians to blame. You know... Sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. So uh, this, this, this fight Francois with Francois. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next two questions are related. Daniel Van Berzon asks, if a new Tory leader simply didn't request an extension, could Parliament actually block a no-deal Brexit? And Tanya Jane Park asks, irrespective of who wins the Tory leadership election and becomes PM, is it correct to think it's unlikely that they could force a no-deal Brexit or allow the UK to drop out by default? Automatic operation of law on October the 31st, given that there isn't any support for these outcomes amongst MPs, because this is something that I think has been very confusing for a very long time, is that MPs are constantly, scare quotes, ruling out no deal, mm-hmm. and yet no deal is the default. So mm-hmm. is there anything more that Parliament can do to actually Yes, block? yes, yes, they need to... Um, I think it's SO14, Standing Order 14, which Burko, who is staying on, uh, has nodded to and given a big sort of, you know, wink at the MPs. You might want to use this. <laughs> SO14, remember it exists, um, which allows them to uh, legislate, to mandate the Prime Minister to do it. Um, and and if the Prime Minister failed to, then they could know confidence the government and a minority government executive could revoke. Wow. So it is possible, but of course... No deal remains the default, and I think what we've got to remember is that Tusk told us to use the time wisely when he get when we got this extension, and so far we haven't. And I think <laughs> our parliamentarians need to wake up and do something mm. to send a warning shot over to Macron, who is only going to gather more support to not extend us if we haven't done that <coughs> thing that, that Tusk's asked for. And there's also a political point here uh, that I think the vast majority of uh, uh, potential Tory leaders, even the ones that are saying they want no deal, do not want no deal. Um, if Boris actually took us to no deal against the wishes of Parliament, he yeah. would own it, lock, stock and barrel. And if there's even a 5% doubt in his mind that it could turn into a shitstorm, he will want Parliament to stop him. That's the point. Catherine on Twitter asks, who would be the best next Lib Dem leader to unite Remain? There's actually fewer... Lib Dem MPs than Tory leadership candidates. Does it right? have to be an MP? <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Naomi? Look, it's going to be a two-way race. The first hustling starting on Friday between Sir Ed Davey and Joe Swinson. So Layla Moran not? No, Layla's knocked herself out. She's, no, not literally. Um, she has <laughs> decided not to She has ruled herself out, was oh. the word I was looking for. Um, she's not going to do it this time. Um, and I think it probably is time for the Lib Dems to have a woman. Uh, they've not yet. Um, and they do have a long tradition of having Scottish leaders. So um, I think she is very much the front runner and will be the leader. Um, uh, whether she can unite Remainers across the Greens and 
uh, you know, wet conservatives and Labour and, and others remains to be seen. And I think that's a very important question that Lib Dems have to put to both the candidates. You know, what is your history of doing cross-party working? Are you doing it? Obviously, you've been doing it on votes, but but are you prepared to do it in some kind of electoral alliance, and, manifesto agreement, etc.? And do we think change would, would split? Because, you know, Heidi Allen is, is the one that's been talking about working with other people, namely Lib Dems. Anna Subri seems to be very much against it. I'm not sure where... I don't know, Mike Gapes or whatever mm, stands on mm, that. But mm. is that actually conceivable that change itself could split and some people could just go off Into and Into change and UK. <laughs> <laughs> no one grabbed FKA Tig, which... <laughs> and so one of them should take that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just seems like yeah. that could happen. Yeah, I yeah. Like the idea yeah it could, could well happen. Uh, finally, Generic Adam from Twitter asks, which is quickly, what's the best and worst case scenario for Tory leadership? Uh, best case scenario... Ken Clark gets them all in a room mm-hmm. in some sort of red wedding type scenario, has them murdered. Worst? That Same. doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but with Boris Johnson. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with Ingrid that I think Boris could be the best thing that ever happened to Remain. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm more worried by, by Raab. Yeah. Because, yeah definitely. because actually, Boris Johnson's sort of f- flexible values yeah. mean that he's not. A committed sort of, you know, a committed headbang in the way that Rob is. He's both a hardline Tory and a hardline Brexit. And so empty. He's so empty. Yeah. I look into his eyes and I see that, you know, one time my water heater, the pilot light wouldn't go on and you just saw black <laughs> through the window. And that's Rob. Also, if Boris Johnson won and then there was a general ele- the leadership contest and there was a general election and he lost, would he be the, the shortest serving prime minister in, in the history of our country? Because that in itself would be quite a thing, wouldn't it? Like a two-month premiership. Is that your best case? That's my best case we need, scenario. We need Robert Saunders here to be, actually. <laughs> there was one Prime Minister Pitch in 1822 <laughs> who fell under a horse. <laughs> okay, that's a taste of Ask Romaniacs. If you'd like some more, we're recording June's special episode in the next couple of weeks. So search Patreon Romaniacs to sign up and get this exclusive extra podcast. More gold like that. And that's the end of the show, which means it's Brexit time capsule time. Ingrid's been away for ages. She gets to choose something to go in our underground bunker of things we'll miss or need if we ever leave the EU. Um, first of all, can I just say I'm officially hereby renouncing my membership of the Conservative Party. <laughs> I think it's very important that I stay there up late. top. I was doing it for you guys. <laughs> already I, you're just kind of like... That's just, what Ali Campbell said. <laughs> already you've just been cutting a little bit of welfare. Just oh, but you know how it is. <laughs> you know. A little touch here, a little touch there. Um, what's going in the... I think I, think I always get the, the, the thrust of this wrong. So I was going to put Gerard Batten in a time, in a time capsule. But I think what I mean by that is... Aspect. He's no. gone in aspect. Sure, yeah. just a little Gerald Batten. Just like a, that was a that was England. Hopefully, that's a that's a thing that's gone. So I know it's not a good thing a to be putting in action figure. Figure. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, oh, just like oh, that's, like do you remember little, when? Sorry. No, go on. No, I like got a little file of Tommy Robinson's tears. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Just a little. Oh, do you remember when we used to be a bit? Not a bit, a bit I thought Nazi. you were going to say and then, a file of Tommy Robinson's convictions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we don't have time for Euro language clip this week, I'm afraid, with all the election news, but we'll have one next time. Until then, thanks to Ingrid, Naomi and Alex. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Now, pray silence for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, and a roll call of some of our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Leo Smallwood, Natalie Griffith, Emiliano Pera, Jonathan Blaine... James, 
sit down next to us, Rob Rowland, Campbell, no longer in the Labour Party, Chris Higgins, Heather Leach and Michael Craven. Thanks from me to Matthew Usher, Ben Phillips, Heather Welford, Matthew Keenan, Emily Pretty, Anita Simmons, Paul Jones, Philip Daniels, Jay Smith and Mike Taylor. And hello from me to Gareth Lynham, Jacob MacDonald, Richie McFarlane, Matt White, Christopher Milsom, Tim Langdon, Katie Mahindra, Michael Kenning, Birgit Yanza, and David Smith. And thanks for me to Tariq Sadiq, Stephen Brown, Daniel Gibbons, Michael Hardy, Shelley Butra, Kenny Dixon, Paul Edward McQuillan, Helen Fisher, Matthew Anderton, and I'm not giving my name to a machine. White right too. Big Brother is watching you. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith, Ingrid Oliver and Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Elsie Bath, at Soho Radio. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.